We have things to talk about involving the coronavirus, as we often have this summer. Is Ohio getting close to herd immunity? We'll be talking about that on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with my colleagues Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Happy Wednesday. It feels like it should be Friday, but it's Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) I actually had a dream that I could not figure out what day it was. It was one of those frustrating moments where it's like, wait, wait, is it Tuesday? Is it Wednesday? And I couldn't get an answer. That's the way life is developed. Let's get started. Is Ohio getting close to herd immunity that would protect us all from the coronavirus? Jen Kuhn, we've been talking about herd immunity since the beginning of the pandemic nearly six months ago. Everybody thinks it's the magic trick, which I'm a little bit surprised at because if the coronavirus doesn't have long lasting immunity because it's a coronavirus, does herd immunity mean anything? But let's stick with the original question. Are we getting close to it in Ohio? Nowhere close, no. (laughs) Uh, Lieutenant Governor John Husted said at the uh, news briefing on Tuesday that the American Red Cross has been telling them, you know, they they test people for antibodies uh, before they give blood. And they're saying that 2.2% of Ohioans it has tested for the antibodies are, are positive for that. So, you know, if you're familiar with herd immunity, it, it happens when a really large portion of a community becomes immune to a disease by recovering from it and, and making the spread of it from person to person a lot less likely. So the whole community gets protection. And, and from what I've seen, experts say that that would have to be like 70% of the population as far as the coronavirus is is concerned. And as you said, of course, we've heard reports that people are getting reinfected. So, you know, maybe there's not even any kind of immunity. But that's... Yeah, I mean, has there ever been like herd immunity for the common cold, which is a coronavirus? And probably not because your body forgets its immunity to the to the common cold. And you're right. We have three cases now, three confirmed cases across the world where people did get reinfected months after they were uh, they were first infected. And that is that tells you even if we get a vaccine, you're going to have to get it regularly. So is there any goal in even thinking about herd immunity? Right. And I, sh- I should note, Ohio has been conducting this large scale serological testing project where, where they've picked 1,200 randomly selected households, you know, and tested someone in each household for for antibodies. And we're supposed to get the results of that in early September. So we'll see what that says. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how far this is spread in Ohio. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are the people behind the campaign to repeal House Bill 6, the nuclear bailout that we now know was forged in a crucible of corruption funded by First Energy, in trouble for their efforts? And this one is kind of throws me, Jay. And these aren't the people that created the whole racketeering case. These are the people that were the target of the racketeering case. And now they're in big trouble. So why are they in trouble? Well, I'm talking about this, so. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, offended. No, um, so. This is interesting. So tomorrow, the Ohio Elections Commission will consider a complaint against a group called Ohioans Against Corporate Bailouts, which was a well-financed political group that tried to repeal the now very controversial House Bill 6. I would say then controversial House Bill 6, too, um, through a citizens referendum that went nowhere last year, basically. And so the group disbanded late last year, shortly after it missed a legal deadline to collect the 
amount of signatures that it needed to get the issue on the ballot for a statewide vote. And the organization never filed a state campaign finance report detailing its 2019 expenditures, which included a bunch of ads, legal expenses, and paid petition workers. Ohio uh, Secretary of State Frank LaRosa's staff referred the case to the Elections Commission in March. And the commission staff wants to fine the group $25 uh, for each day that has passed since January 31st, uh, the deadline under state law for the campaign groups that perform political work during 2019. And they could fine them up to $100 a day, but I, apparently since they're a first-time offender, they're going to consider a lower-end penalty for them. You know, you got to really feel bad for these people because here they were trying to do something that they thought was in the public interest. They were treated badly, pretty much illegally. You remember what they went through. They'd be out trying to get signatures and the other side was buying off their signature takers to stop doing it. They were confronting them in physical violence. They were running up against those ridiculous red scare ads about China owning all the utilities in Ohio. I mean, they were, they, they, they were trying to do something that every citizen has a right to do to, to take advantage of the democratic process. And they were blocked at every turn. And now, they're going to get fined. I don't quite understand why they don't submit their reports. I mean, yeah. Could I uh, jump in mm -hmm. here? This is Jane Cahoon. I agree with everything you just said, Chris. But these are not unsophisticated people. I mean, they were yeah. funded by <laughs> other interests, like you know, natural gas interests, uh, other people with a financial stake in this, and they should really know what the campaign finance rules are. Uh, so why uh, didn't they, Jane? Why do you think they didn't do the they, basic? I don't think they will comment to us. Yeah. It's, Are they hiding something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they, need to, they need to learn how to use dark money because, you know, if they'd have done that, they would never have to disclose anything. So so there's a possibility that that if they provide these records, we would learn things that they would be embarrassed by. Who knows? You're asking me, or I think Chris Renaski should answer this question. <laughs> I, I, I mean, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's. You never know what happens when you start digging around in, in stuff like this. But there, there's actually a new campaign now calling itself the Coalition to Restore Public Trust that has formed to pressure lawmakers to repeal House Bill Six. So you know. So it goes, you know, the, we just sort of start out and it just the whole process just starts over again. Well, they all said right away they would repeal House Bill 6 and then there's been zero activity to do so. And so that completely stinky deal remains right. on the book and, in Ohio. And one other important thing to note is that the the people in favor of House Bill 6 used all kinds of dark money to promote their interests and they're not required to disclose any of that. So there, there does seem to be a bit of an injustice here. It'll yeah, be a but, sad but day they, if it turns out that both sides of this deal are stinky. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what does that say for Ohio politics? What were you going to say, Chris? Oh, I said, well, but thus far, only one side of the argument is facing the prospect of not getting to sleep in their own homes for a couple of months. <laughs> Good <laughs> okay. point. We'll leave that one there. It's this week in the CLE. What did in-school classes look like this week in Painesville, one of the first Northeast Ohio school districts to bring students back to the classroom? Laura Johnson, this is the big experiment. We've been talking about it for months. 
when kids come back to school, what happens? Hannah Drown, one of our reporters, talked her way in. Painesville welcomed her in to see all the steps they are taking. It's a very different setting than I think most people are familiar with in schools. Describe it for us, please. Yeah. Um, and and we have great photos from Dave Pekowitz, too. Um I believe every kid and staff member is wearing masks. Kid are sp- kids are spread out in desks facing forward. Each person who arrives is thermally scanned for their temperature reading. And if a high temperature is recorded, then they go to the school clinic. They must maintain social distancing throughout the day. So cl- um, each room is stocked with cleaning and disinfecting supplies. Classroom transitions in the hallways are limited. And some specials like music is taught in different classrooms to limit students' time in the hallways. There's no use of the cafeteria right now. They're eating in their classroom. What's really interesting about this uh, in Painesville is that families were given two options, either learn remotely from home, which a lot of school districts offered, and then or learn in the classroom five days a week. So they don't have this hybrid option that a lot of districts are offering. So, But if Lake County goes to level three, they're all going to be remote. Yeah, it was. I was fascinated by how they're doing the lunches and how they're doing the temperature stations. It seems like they put a lot of very good thought into this, but you're still dealing with children. And you know, children don't always follow the rules. So uh, it'd be interesting to see in two, three, four weeks, whether you're seeing an uptick in Painesville in the cases or whether their precautions really worked. And it offers lessons for the rest of the schools in Northeast Ohio, should they choose to come back. Check out those photos. Check out Hannah's story on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The Democrats in Ohio do what we all thought they would and file suit against Secretary of State Frank LaRose over ballot drop boxes. Jane Cahoon, tell me it isn't so. Are we back in court on election matters a few months before a presidential election in Ohio? It's never happened before. (laughs) Yes, Chris, we certainly are back in court. The uh, Democrats filed a lawsuit in Franklin County Common Police Court. They want a judge to declare that it's perfectly legal for Secretary of State Frank LaRose to allow multiple drop boxes in, in each county. And they want to invalidate this directive that he issued that prohibits county boards of elections from offering more than one of these boxes. Uh, You know, the Democrats, as as well as voter rights activists and and election officials in, in some of the larger counties, want these drop boxes because they say it's going to help reduce lines and it's going to relieve pressure on the mail system. You know, they're expecting a larger than normal participation in in mail voting because of the coronavirus pandemic. So, but the Republicans uh, have resisted this. Uh, So, you know, our legislature hasn't declared that, that this could be allowed, which, which is what LaRose wants them to do, I guess. But, and President Donald Trump's campaign has already sued Pennsylvania for offering drop boxes and that that's still going on. But here, here's the thing. I, you can make a really strong, logical argument that Cuyahoga County, which has a lot of people, should have multiple drop boxes compared to a rural county that doesn't. And, and, and it's a good case. And, and I think most election advocates would say, yes, let's make it easier. The thing that I think is difficult is making a legal case because it is up to the legislature and the secretary of state to set election policy. And if they determine that's not our election policy, I don't really see what the legal standing is to go in and compel that unless you're making a case that it's somehow a civil rights violation that gets you 
gets the federal courts in purview, which doesn't seem to be what they're saying. I, I just think it's odd that the Democrats are trying to use the courts to set election policy when it's not really the court's job. Yeah, this could be an uphill climb. I, and they did not go to federal court. They went to state court. So, you know, they're obviously not making that kind of allegation here, but they they yeah. are trying to get a judge to declare that, you know, there's nothing in the state law that, that prevents this. Well, and, you know, in a county court, you never know what a county judge is going to do. <laughs> you never make know. Weird decisions. But ultimately, this would go to the Ohio Supreme Court, which pretty much follows the law. So it seems like a, a bit of a, a exotic quest here to to change election law. Uh, although, again, they're, they're, they seem like they're on the right side of policy and, and this would be a good thing for the voter. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the unanswered questions about the presidential debate that will take place in Cleveland on September 29th? Chris Warnowski, I seeded this question into the middle of the podcast because I expect we're going to talk about it for a little while. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of unanswered questions in a whole bunch of different ways uh, and it involves some of the people that uh, Jane Cahoon deals with, too. So so what are some of these unanswered questions? Right. There's 10, maybe about 10 unanswered questions that we we focused on that will probably be the subject of many future podcasts. So. There, there's a lot we actually do know. We know, you know, that that they they're probably going to allow some people into the Cleveland Clinic facility where the debate is taking place. Uh, you know, um, there's a possibility that both candidates won't have to wear masks and stuff like that. So there's there's a lot of great information about what we do know in the story. But for the sake of this segment, we're going to focus on what we don't know. Um, we don't know if the organizers are going to collect any personal information for contact tracing in case somebody tests positive for the coronavirus. Uh, we don't know if attendees are going to be required to sign a hold harmless waiver promising not to sue the organizers before entering. And I assume the organizers would be, uh, what would it be the debate debate commission, the clinic, like who, who, who would be the organizer in this, in this scenario? Does anybody know? Well, well I think it's the Commission on Presidential Debate. Yeah, so that's what I figured. And then uh, we we don't know if attendees will be screened or, or tested for symptoms before entering. Uh, we have and 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 moving outside, we have no idea um, how many roads they're going to close around this area. Uh, uh, who's going to be allowed in the perimeter around the pavilion? Secret Service, which traditionally plans the security for the events, they haven't said whether other federal agents from outside the Secret Service will be assisting with security, which I think is going to be a particular interest given, you know, the sort of law and order tone of of one candidacy uh, here. And uh, and we don't know what, if any, law enforcement agencies from Ohio are going to be providing any assistance and how. Um, how they're going to sort of handle crowd control. Is it going to be handled the way they handled the Republican National Convention, or is it going to be like they how they handled the aftermath of the Michael Brillo trial? We don't know. So, you know, well, there's... And, and if, if you think back to the Republican National Convention, a huge portion of downtown was surrounded by tall chain link fencing that, that kept people from moving around. You know, if they're going to do something like that, they kind of do have to tell us because it'll change traffic and how far that would spread out. This is a building that stretches from Chester to Euclid, mm -hmm. and, you know, two very busy roads, two blocks from 
the Huff neighborhood where there's lots of houses where people could set up to do things. I, it's just this is a this is a challenge security wise, especially given what happened on May 30th, where the police were outnumbered and appeared to have jumped the gun and launched munitions on a largely peaceful crowd and sparking lots of mayhem and riots that cost millions of dollars. These are serious questions about what they're doing, how they're going to protect the city uh, without even coming up with answers yet for how May 30th went wrong, apart from all the political stuff you mentioned and apart from all of the the COVID information Mm -hmm. you mentioned. I mean, do we believe that we'll have hundreds of reporters from national and local media outlets coming to town? Or do we think that they will rely on covering those remotely because we're all so used to this year covering things remotely? Probably. I mean, I, I mean, again, that's a, that's an agency by agency call and they haven't really said how much media they're letting into the building either. So, you know, it may come down to, you know, there being some practical limitations on on just how many how much media is going to be allowed in the building and 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 i'm sure that'll shape you know news directors and and assignment editors will to send people to cleveland i mean you know again it's it's you know, we, I mean, we wrestle with this every day. It's like, you know, do we send people to this thing? And it's like, you know, if, if we can help it, no. And so, you know, I think that'll drive a lot of the decision making in that sense. And, and it's, and it's, you know, we've had, I mean, we've had, and, and it doesn't get a lot of coverage. I mean, we do have demonstrations here almost, you know, every week, you know, there's something going on and, you know, a lot of it doesn't get a lot of attention because it's not really, you know, I mean, it's just we, we don't have the resources to cover every demonstration that happens in the city. And and, and so and things have largely been peaceful. But what and what I'm saying is, is like, but this is going to be an event where a lot of eyeballs are going to be on it that, you know, it's the first debate. It's it, and it's it's you're going to see a lot of people who are. I, I hate even the saying this. I hate, but I hate saying this see. because, like, it, it makes it makes it sound like I'm making the outside agitator thing argument here. I'm not making that argument, but it does draw people in. It, the RNC drew people in. This is one of those events where people are going to come here to specifically demonstrate, right? But and and so it's going to be a bigger security event. It's going and and you know and our and our hope is that. It, you know, things, you know, we do maintain decorum here and that, and that, that things stay peaceful and, and, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody's hoping for unrest. So, you know, it's, it's, we've, we've, we've performed very well on a national stage when it comes to big events like this. So Until I, May I hope 30th. we can continue. Yeah. But it's like, you know, but we were one of how many cities that was going through the same thing, you know, it's, to me, there was that was big. I mean, that was one of the biggest weekends of organizing, I think, in this country since the 60s. And so, you know, we were part of like a larger thing that was going on there. And But you talk about the RNC and what happened during the RNC. The RNC was not in a backdrop of the social upheaval we've seen this summer, which is growing again right now because of the the horrible video we've all seen of what happened in Kenosha. So, So having this debate in this summer does, I, I think, increase the chances for some, some serious I would, unrest. I, I would disagree a little bit with that, only in the sense that 
you know, a lot of this justice reform stuff that is at the heart of a lot of these issues did start in earnest under Barack Obama's administration. You know, Barack Obama was president when Tamir Rice got killed. You know, it's, you know, these, you know, these things don't happen. You know, these things cross administrative lines and, and term, term, you know, so. Oh, I disagree with you. I think this summer has marked a completely new era of this. And most people say the same thing. You didn't see riots in Cleveland during even the Tamir Rice, and it was here. Uh, Columbus didn't have days of it. Portland's had months of it. Do you, the, the, the things that are happening in this country haven't happened since the 60s. This is, which, you know, think about it. The convention in the 60s is where we all talk about it, 1968. Are we mm. coming up in this debate on a similar kind of moment? But think about it, you know, in, you know, we had a convention last week and we're in the throes of one right now and but there's no people. And, right. And so, you know, here, 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 we're, we're sort of seeing like this could have been, you know, the, the daily Chicago convention and it, and, and by will of the coronavirus, we haven't had to reckon with that really, you know, I mean, what's, what's happening in Kenosha is, is separate from that, but still very much linked to the culture war that is just at the heart of everything that we're sort of dealing with right now as a nation. So, but the difference is between the conventions and this debate is both candidates. They're going to be present. I mean, Biden didn't go to the convention. He did it completely remotely. This is it. This is, and it's the first one. So it's the, the, it could be the lightning rod. So, so it gets back to the unanswered questions. It's really important to answer them because people are yeah. going to want to know that the elected leaders and the police and the federal authorities are taking steps to make sure the city is safe. Well, when- I, I, I have some sense that, you know, that this will start to trickle out a little more after this can, you know, the, the secret services is, is probably very heavily involved in the the Republican National Convention right now. So and you know, it granted we we're a month out and we're we're saying like where are these plans but you know, this is what the secret service does and I think, you know, these things all these pieces will start to fall into place here in the coming weeks. So <laughs> I'd feel a lot better about your statement Chris if the secret service had known the debate was coming before it was announced. That was the You're local listening. that was the local guy but you yeah, know, we'll, I know. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE How many people has Metro Health and its partners tested for the coronavirus and underserved neighborhoods? Lar Johnson, it's one of the good news stories that comes out of the coronavirus. People trying to do right to try and get to people who might not have the means or the uh, ability to travel for testing. What's this one about? Yeah, so Metro Health has worked with a number of churches throughout Cleveland. They've tested nearly 2,000 people for COVID-19 this summer. It's all in underserved neighborhoods. They're working with these churches and the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. They had 18 churches since mid-July. Most of these were in Black or Hispanic neighborhoods where residents said they had no ready access to other testing sites. And anyone could go. It wasn't just members of these churches. But uh, the analysis from those uh, from the testing showed about 4% of the tests were positive and most positive tests were from adults in their twenties, which is pretty interesting. And they're actually going to keep doing this. They've got a whole list of places that they're working on the next couple of weeks. You can go get tested at. Right. It's it, the, the percentage was, was a little bit surprising. And again, the age group, that's the age group that's not necessarily coming down with bad symptoms, but they're spreading it. Yeah. Um, and even though adults over 60 accounted for nearly half of them tested and 14% of the positive tests, I, I don't even know, I guess if I was in my twenties and I wasn't 
feeling ill if I would go get tested, but they are and they're finding it. So it's good. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the people in their fifties and sixties are trying not to get sick because they get hammered by this so badly. Mm-hmm. Whereas I guess people in their twenties are not as fearful. It's this week in the CLE. What is the reaction of Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Senate President Larry Obhoff to the call for the impeachment of the governor? Jen Kuhn, we talked a little bit about this uh, on um, Tuesday morning, but we also wondered whether Mike DeWine would smile when he was asked the question. <laughs> and he did. Uh, it was He did see this as amusing and he kind of brushed it away in a kind of fun fashion. So start with the wine. How did he respond to this when he was on camera yesterday? Yes, I loved his somewhat sassy reaction. He did have a smile on his face the whole time. We knew he was going to be asked about it at his briefing. And he said, look, it's a free country. If that's how they <laughs> want to spend their time, you know, have at it. So uh, and and he then he basically defended himself and said, you know, I'm sworn to protect the people of the state of Ohio and to get the economy moving, you know, back again. And that's what I'm going to do. This is a 100, once in a 100 year pandemic. And, you know, I'm making decisions with the best advice of, of health experts. And this is preserving life is a is a conservative value. And that's that's what I'm doing. I think that was a jab at the ultra conservative lawmakers who are behind the impeachment effort. But but then I do. I do think, though, that he did he he did a very strategic and thing, very smart thing in bringing up his gun laws, which he right. had just done on what last Thursday. Right. That's what but I it, but, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you stepped on me. I was about to go into that. <laughs> um, he, he, he really used the opportunity to jab at lawmakers for not doing anything on these gun and police reforms that, that he's proposed. And, and he, he pretty much, uh, said, uh, you know, he included a little snark there about, you know, they could be more productively spending their time on that instead of, you know, this impeachment stuff. Well, I think it I think it was a, a more serious belittling than that. It's basically this is the nonsense they're doing. OK, it's a free country. Uh-huh. Go ahead and do it. But people in the cities are dying left and right from gun violence. I mean, right. he, he went back to look, it was kind of odd in a coronavirus briefing last week to hold up a bunch of newspaper headlines of people getting shot to push his gun laws. But, you know, he's the governor. He has a bully pulpit. We're all watching. So why not to bring that back right away? It, it 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 seemed just like, OK, guys, you're going to seek to impeach me. I'm going to humiliate you because you're doing nothing to protect all the people that are getting murdered in this state. And as we've talked about, you know, his his gun proposals have a lot of common sense to them. The the Senate president, Larry Abhoff, had kind of the same attitude. What did he say? Well, this this I really liked this story. I, I'm kind of wonky here, but but Larry Abhoff talked to Laura Hancock and He's kind of come out swinging here. It's sort of like he's been liberated now that his fellow Republican Larry Householder has been ousted as speaker because of the federal corruption charges he's facing. But he and Householder and Abhoff never really got along. And that's just ultimately clear here. But Abhoff gave a window into how dysfunctional this relationship was by pointing out that the Senate had sent over seven coronavirus-related pieces of legislation that not only never got acted on by the House, but not even accepted. There, there's this tradition where they they pass something in the Senate, 
And then the clerk walks it over to the house physically, delivers it along with the bill messages, and then it's accepted and, and, and acted upon. And that it was clear to him that the clerk was told to like, not even accept these, these messages. And so where he's coming from is you didn't do anything related to the coronavirus, including act on some of these bills that would have restrained DeWine's power like they want to do. But here you are going after this, you know, impeachment effort when when you didn't do anything. So. Yeah, it's another it's another belittling like it's another. This is the nonsense you're going to play around with something that has no hope of happening and you really shouldn't be doing. Meanwhile, important business is not occurring in your in your chamber of the house. It was, I mean, it was kind of a slap in the face of the house membership. It'll be interesting to see if they respond in any way because they're not looking good here. Yeah. The, the house spokesman now says that the new speaker, Bob cup is realizes there's a lot of unfinished business here. You know, what, what I thought was fascinating was that Abhoff said he never really confronted household around this stuff because they barely spoke, you know, like what, here we have the two Republican top leaders of the legislature. They don't even talk to each other or didn't even talk to each other. That's because Householder was so busy browbeating his members to vote yeah. for First Energy. I mean, <laughs> we've seen the emails. We know what he was doing. Hey, you know, how so much energy. Any time to talk to the Senate when the when he's got a, his House members in order because they're voting against him twice. Well, it was in, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's we talked yesterday. The whole impeachment thing is is kind of a diversion and fake. It's not going to happen, but it was fun to watch two political leaders swing away at it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for this episode on Wednesday. It is Wednesday, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We will be back on Thursday. Thursday.